0: It's true that our experience of the world is full of the glorious and the gruesome. It's full of the good and the grievous, isn't it? And that prompts a lot of questions for us. Why is it like this? Why is there so much beauty amidst the pain? Why so much difficulty amidst the delight? And then there's another question, I guess, that pops into our mind alongside that first one. What am I meant to do about this? How am I supposed to respond to the good and the grievous? How am I meant to cope? And it doesn't take long for that to prompt a deeper question. What's really going on here? Is there some purpose behind all this? Is there a purpose to life? Is there a plan? Is there some sort of meaning I'm meant to find in this? And then when you push it back even further, why is there all of this? Why why is there something, not just nothing? Why do we exist at all? Why are there stars in the universe whose light we'll never see? Why are there whole species who have lived, thrived and died that no human has ever laid eyes upon? Where did all this come from? glorious and gruesome as it is has it always been here if not how did it come to be here why is there something rather than nothing and so tonight we're going to try to look for some answers to those questions in the Christian Bible Uh, where it will take us I hope is to a deeper grasp of who God is and who we are in relationship with him and my prayer has been that it will change how you decide to live in this world Now, everyone at some point has asked these questions. But the answers people have come up with over the centuries have been extremely varied. So you can see there on page 25, which is where I'm at, you'll find three common answers, none of which, from a Christian point of view, are correct. But all of which you've probably encountered, either in family or friends or lecturers or just people you've met. So let's have a look at them. First of all, you can see there... um, dualism. There are always two-ism. You see there, I've got a little diagram and I've sort of got time running from left to right in that little diagram. In the dualist worldview, matter, the stuff that everything is made of, matter is eternal, as is God. However, in this worldview, matter, physical matter, is bad. It's spiritual that is good. And at some point, the eternal matter has been formed into the physical universe of which we are a part. But we humans are in particular a mixture of both the physical, our bodies, and the spiritual, our soul. Now this dualistic worldview was very significant in the philosophy of the ancient Greeks, think Plato, Aristotle, etc. And it's therefore been, had a very significant impact in Western society across the world. And you'll still hear hangovers from this dualist worldview even among Christians. And as we'll see, they really should know better. But you see it when Christians elevate the spiritual as more valuable, as more significant, as more pleasing to God than the physical. They can tend to be a little bit suspicious of any physical pleasure. And they're often surprised to learn that in the, the new creation that God's bringing about, will actually be physical, it'll be bodied, it'll be a bodied existence. That's because they've adopted this sort of dualistic worldview of God's relationship with the world. Well if you had that dualistic sort of worldview how do you explain the good and the grievous? Well in this worldview the problem is the physical matter from which we're made. Evil is an inevitable part here of our entrapped physical existence. And the good things you experience, well, they're not actually really good either because they're marred by the very physicality of your being and they're really just a shadow of the real good and the real good is purely spiritual. Well, the solution then in this worldview is somehow you've got to escape the contaminating material and, and exist like God as pure spirit or soul. That's one type of explanation. Here's another pantheism pan just means all uh, theism means God so pantheism means all is God ism now this is the view that deep down everything is God everything is divine the universe is God and God is the universe we are all part of the one divine reality uh, Hinduism for an example is pantheistic Everything, in Hinduism, we're told everything is from Brahman. Brahman is the ultimate and the only reality in the universe. Everything, including the physical world, humanity, all the gods, of which there are thousands, all are part of the one reality. We're all just sparks of the divine flame. You can see the quote there on your page from some Hindu scriptures. This is the truth, as from a blazing fire thousands of flaming sparks come forth so from the imperishable, my friend, various beings come forth and return there also. So our purpose in Hinduism is to escape the cycle of physical rebirth, cease your individual personal existence and be reunited with Brahman. So in that frame how do you understand the good and the grievous well in pantheism everything is part of the one reality what is truly evil is the illusion of separateness and distinction because that's when we fail to grasp our fundamental unity as part of the one divine reality so the solution therefore to coping in the present is knowledge know that actually we're all part of the one At the one day you will merge back into the great amorphous oneness and cease to be as an individual. A final alternative we often encounter is atheism. Maybe you're most familiar with this. There is no God, there's no creator, as Bertrand Russell put it there, the universe just is, that is all. There's no external cause that explains our existence, the physicists push back to explain how the complex universe in which we live developed from a singularity but they can't tell us how that singularity came to be which means in atheism there's no objective meaning or purpose to our existence in fact to even ask the question is silly according to richard dawkins here a quote from when he was on q and a last year what is the purpose of the universe is a silly question. The question has no meaning. Well, then what do you say in that sort of atheistic framework about the good and the grievous? Well, I guess what you regard as evil ends up just being a matter of subjective opinion. One example is uh, classic Buddhism, which adopts an atheistic mindset. mindset. Uh, In classic Buddhism, we perceive something as evil because of a personal desire for something else, right? I, I, I perceive an evil here because actually I want something else. So this must be evil. Uh, the solution in Buddhism is to attain a state of enlightenment, which is a complete detachment from all the physical and mental activity going on around you. Around you. So if you turn over the page, to page 26, you can see some quotes from Buddha. He says, A wise man, recognising that the world is but an illusion, does not act as if it is real. So he escapes the suffering. Remove yourself, detach yourself from everything around you, even your own situation, then you won't suffer. Or again, he says, He who loves 50 people has 50 woes. He who loves no one has no woes. Is that really the solution? That's it. Just don't get emotionally involved with anything or anyone. I just find that really sad because I think in the true and living God revealed in Jesus Christ, there is a better way. When we turn to the Christian Bible, we see that these questions with which we started. Why is the universe like it is? Why is there something rather than nothing? These are affirmed in the Bible as important questions. The Bible starts in its very first chapter... With this question of creation. Why is it here? Why is it like it is? What's our place in it? And so we're now going to listen to Genesis chapter 1.
1: Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be, let the waters be separated by an expanse. Let there be, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters be gathered together into the one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. the earth and it was so the earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their kinds and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to rule over the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let there be living creatures that swarm in the waters and let the birds fly above the heavens and fill the earth. And it was so. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that lives in the waters with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And God created every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and fill the waters and the seas and let birds birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day and God said let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds and it was so And God created the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the living creatures and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And it was so. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living creature on the face of the earth. And behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You will have these for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and every living thing that creeps on the ground, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had created. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day.
0: What's the picture that God has given us here at the beginning of the Bible, that first chapter, Genesis chapter 1? You might like to fill in some of the blanks on your page as we go down page 26. It'd help to have your Bible open potentially as well. Uh, First of all, page 26, what we learn from Genesis 1 is that God is the source of all that is. Notice there in the very first verse... God created the heavens and the earth. That is absolutely everything. Just a way of saying everything, or the heavens and the earth. In contrast, everything else, we learn, is created. That is, nothing else other than God is eternal. There's no dualism here. Everything else is created. Everything else is distinct and separate from God. The world's not some sort of extension of God's own being, as in pantheism. There's God, and then there's everything else that he creates. There's a distinction and separateness there. But everything else that God creates is also dependent. The world only exists, we learn here, because God speaks it into being. The universe does not have its own independent existence, as in, say, atheism. But also, and maybe you notice this because it was repeated throughout, everything else that God makes is good. It reaches a climax there in verse 31. When God has finished his work of creation, we read, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. There's no negativity here, is there, about the physical world as in dualism. It's all very good. But there's some more things to note here as well. Uh, we learn that God alone is eternal. And this is a truth picked up by the psalmist in Psalm 90 there in your book. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God alone is eternal, but also God is utterly transcendent. Now, I have a little quick exercise for you right now. Uh, You see the question there at the bottom of page 26? What is God made of? Hmm. What is God made of? I want you to write down in the box there your answer. And then I want you to share your answer with the person next to you. Okay? And you've got 30 seconds. All right now, over the years shh. thank you uh, now, over the years, i've heard all sorts of answers to that question, uh, but the best answer is this: What is God made of? Nothing And some people are feeling, oh, I'm so awesome because I got that um, and the rest of you going, well, it doesn't make any sense. Can't be made of nothing. Well, actually, God's actually not made at all, is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's the first thing to say. He's not actually made at all. If you if you wrote the, the very question reveals the ignorance of those persons who ask it, then yeah, thumbs up to you. Okay, right, but. But actually, God is not composed of any stuff, because stuff is created. He's completely different to everything else in this material universe. That's actually what we mean when we say he's transcendent. He exists separate to and free from all the limitations of the material universe that he's created. How can it be made? How can it be made of nothing? But but he's not made of stuff. He's not made of stuff. The last of these observations there then is at the top of the next page, page 27. God alone has life in himself. Only God has his own independent existence. Everything else, all of us from the smallest grain of sand to the entirety of the universe, all is completely dependent upon Him for life and existence. The only reason we live is because He grants us life. Whereas He in Himself, as Father, Son and Spirit, He has life in Himself. Now, Jesus acknowledges this in John 5:26, when He says there on your page, For just as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Now, I just think that's a really helpful reminder because we so easily take our life for granted as though it is inevitable that I was going to be here today living and breathing. It's not inevitable at all. The reality is that everything you can see around you, including yourself, is completely dependent upon God for existence and life. There's no inevitability about you being here today because it's only God's gracious gift of life that any of us are here at all. We are thoroughly and utterly dependent upon Him. That is what Genesis 1 tells us. Now there's two more questions we can ask though before we leave Genesis 1. Uh, The first is there, point A on page 27. How then does God create? Now, if you remember last night's talk uh, on the Trinity, the answer to this question is going to be the same as the answer to how does God do anything? Whatever God does, He does trinitarianly. He does as Father, Son, and Spirit. And we see that echoed here in Genesis 1. God creates trinitarianly. He creates through His Word and Spirit. Uh, did you notice as we read through Genesis 1, each moment of creation started the same way, and God said, each day starts with that same phrase, and God said, creation is, is affected by God speaking, it's a divine word that brings everything else into existence. But it's not word alone. In verse 2, which is printed there on your page, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the ruach of God was hovering over the waters. Now I don't have a terrible cough. It's a Hebrew word. You've got to get your gutturals going, right? Ruach. Now, that Hebrew word, ruach, which I can't say too many more times without getting a sore throat. That is the word for breath, wind, spirit. Right? Same word used for breath, wind, spirit. The ruach of God was hovering over the waters. When you think about it, though, there's a very close connection, isn't there, between breathing, breath, and word, speaking. For me to speak to you, I need to use my breath. Otherwise, we do. I just realized you didn't even know what I just said there, which is a great shame. It was very profound. <laughs> word, word and spirit, speaking and breath, they go together, right? Which makes sense. God is Father, Son, and Spirit undivided in his actions. So you have God's word and his breath, his spirit present there in the act of creation. Now, when we come to the fullness of God's revelation in the New Testament, that creative word of God is identified for us with God, the eternal son, second person of the Trinity. You can see it there on your page from John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things came into being through him and without him not one thing came into being and the word became flesh and lived among us God the son is God the eternal word through him all things were made And then who astoundingly takes on human flesh himself as the man Jesus of Nazareth and lived out among us to make God known to us and to secure our salvation through his death and his resurrection. That is the wonder of the incarnation. So God creates through his word and his spirit. But then jump down towards the bottom of page 27. There's another question that's worth asking. Why does God create? Now I often hear a lot of mistakes when people ask this question. Uh, the first thing to say is that God does not create from a need or deficiency in Himself. Right? We learnt last night, God is Father, Son and Spirit in an eternal perfect relationship of love. There's no, there's no lack in God's relationship. There's no need for a new relationship because He has got a bit bored with Himself as Father, Son and Spirit. There's no need or loneliness or lack of satisfaction in God's eternal relationships as Father, Son and Spirit. He's not like you when you go out and buy a puppy. We all know the reason you went out to buy that puppy is because you want something to love that will love you back. (laughs) If you didn't want... To be loved back, you would have bought a cat. <laughs> Without being disrespectful, the, the world is not God's puppy. It has not been created because God has some lack in himself, needing to be loved. He's, God is entirely satisfied as Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity in mutual relationships of love. So why then does God create? Well, I think we get a bit of an answer in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul is talking about God the Son. He says there, All things have been created through the Son, through Him, and for Him. That is, the entire universe has been created as a gift for the Son. Now, that's worth pausing over just for a moment. Everything that is, everything and everyone around you has been created as a gift for the Son. Not only has it been made through Him, but it's been made for Him. He's not just the agent of creation, he's its recipient as well. It's been made for him. Now that has the potential to turn your whole life upside down. See, we live most of our lives consumed with ourselves, our plans, our dreams, and yes, also our hurts and our experiences. Now those things are not unimportant. In fact, from the Bible's point of view, they have incredible dignity because God has created us each individually and um, a, a, as, a, as an individual, precious to him. So what happens to you matters to him. But there is a bigger story than just you. A bigger, wonderful story in which your story and my story find their proper orientation. Orientation. And that's the story that everything and everyone has been, been created for Jesus, the Son of God. So there is meaning to each of our lives. We live for him. There's meaning and purpose for Sydney University. For the city of Sydney. Sydney. For the country of Australia. There's meaning and purpose to our existence. We are for him. And that raises a pretty obvious question for each of us. Are you living for Jesus? Are you living for the one through whom and for whom you've been made? Because that is God's plan for you. That's his purpose. That's his good purpose. Now if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're not yet a Christian, then know this, you, you, can't, you can't really begin to live for Jesus without coming to him first and acknowledging that actually you haven't been living for him. Living for Jesus starts with an apology, with then receiving his forgiveness, which he loves to give and then goes on to put him at the center of all of life. Living for Jesus will touch all parts of your life, but it starts with an apology and receiving his forgiveness. Of course, you might have been a Christian for ages and still not really be living for Jesus, and that's a problem. You can't grab hold of forgiveness with one hand, and yet refuse to let go of your own plans and priorities with the other hand. When we come to Christ, we entrust our whole selves to Him. We entrust to Him our sin, our need for forgiveness, and our plans, and our priorities, and our dreams, and our hurts. We bring it all to Him and say, Here, you take it all. I know I only live because of you, and I've been made to live for you and so I entrust myself, all of myself, to you. We live for Jesus the Son or ultimately we live for nothing. Maybe even if you're a Christian, maybe you've got some reorientating to do. Now I call this talk, God is our sovereign creator. Uh, We've talked about God as creator. God's not just the creator of the world. We learn from the scriptures that he's sovereign over it. So let's move on to think about that. I'm on page 28. God is sovereign. Now, the great blessing that comes from knowing that God is sovereign is that it brings real comfort to us amidst the good and the grievous. Because, first of all, what God is sovereign means is He is in control. God's sovereignty is, we learn from the Bible, complete. He does whatever He chooses. You can see it there on your page, Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. God achieves his purposes, whatever he chooses. He's not like my kids. Some of my kids would like to think that they are sovereign. Whatever I like, I do. No. Some of the things you like, you get to do. They're not sovereign, okay? But God, whatever he likes, he does. God achieves his sovereign purposes even even through contrary human intention. The story of Joseph in Genesis is just one case in point. Uh, You might know the story. Uh, His brothers did a terrible, a terribly wicked thing. They sold him into slavery, which is awful. But ultimately, God used it to preserve his chosen people through a devastating famine. And this was then Joseph's later testimony to the brothers who had sold him into slavery. This is what he said there on your page. Genesis 50 verse 20. Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. An even more stark example is found in the death of Jesus. According to Acts 2 verse 23 and Acts 4 verse 28, even though... The killing of Jesus was the supreme act of human wickedness. I mean, to kill God's son, Jesus. Yet, we learn in those verses, it was done according to God's purpose and foreknowledge. So God worked the greatest moment of salvation through the greatest act of human rebellion. God achieves his purposes even through contrary human intentions. Uh, We learn also from the Bible that God's sovereignty is not selective. Uh, He's not just sovereign over some events and then out of the picture when other things happen. Uh, Two verses from Proverbs 16 make this point. Uh, Verse 9 there, the human mind plans the way, but the Lord directs the steps. Or verse 33, the lot, you know, the dice, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. So the picture we get here from the Bible is an absolute affirmation that God is in control. There's no doubt about it. He is in control. But he's not just in control. We also know that he is good. Now, in the middle of your page, there's a very important passage for understanding who God is. It's from Exodus 33 and 34, where the Lord God reveals himself to Moses. And are central to what God reveals to Moses is his goodness. Have a look there at Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then a little bit later in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Yet by no means clearing the guilty. But visiting the iniquity of the parents. Upon the children and the children's children. To the third and the fourth generation. See when Moses asked to see God's glory. The Lord responds by revealing his Goodness the glorious thing about God, his glory is that he is good and that goodness is seen in the way he shows mercy and grace, in the way he's slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, in the way he forgives sin. But his goodness is also seen in the way he maintains justice. To be truly good means you don't just sweep evil under the carpet. You don't just turn a blind eye if you're truly good. He doesn't overlook sin and evil. He gives it what it deserves. God is thoroughly and consistently good. And the fact that God is good is echoed then throughout the rest of the scriptures. There on your page, Psalm 119. You, Lord, are good and do good. Top of the next page, Psalm 100, verse 5 and this is just one of many examples in the book of Psalms that say the same thing here, we get a summary of what we just read in Exodus 34. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. It's just a potted summary, isn't it, of what we read in Exodus 34. So the consistent testimony in the Old Testament is that God is good. But as always... When God the Son comes among us in the person of Jesus, that's when God's goodness is most clearly seen. And so much so, actually, that the the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the goodness of God. Have a look there, the way Paul wrote to Titus, Titus chapter 3, 4 to 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, that is, he's talking about Jesus, right? He now speaking about God the Father, saved us not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, you think Moses was in a pretty special situation really he asked to see God's glory and God said yep you just wait there on the rock I'll just put my hand there hand metaphor he doesn't have a hand right I'll put my hand there so you and you can just I'll pass by you and you can see my back now that would be pretty cool wouldn't it you're out there wandering around the happy lands of Maru and God reveals his that would be amazing wouldn't it except that you already have a clearer vision of God's goodness than Moses ever got because you see Jesus in the testimony of the Scriptures. Not just in how Jesus treated people. Oh, look, he's so good. No, you, you see God's goodness ultimately in Jesus' death. Because that's where his goodness, his mercy and his justice are most clearly on display together. That's where God's astounding love and faithfulness are most clearly seen. And our Jim Packer put it this way, he said, Calvary, which is the name of that spot where Jesus was crucified, Calvary is the measure of the goodness of God, where his justice and his mercy are both on display. So this is where our comfort lies. As we live in a world full of the good and the grievous, our comfort comes from the fact that God is sovereign. He is in control. He is good. And it's in the cross of Jesus that most, clo- most clearly both those truths are revealed to us. But the fact that God is sovereign does raise for us a lot of questions. Uh, I, I thought of at least five, just some of the questions I thought of. Uh, if God is really sovereign, like we've seen, are we really making real decisions if He's really in control of everything? Secondly, if everything is happening according to God's plan or will, Can I find out what that will is? Does he have a plan for my life, particular plan? Because I'd certainly like to know that, what it is. And if God chooses then who's going to be saved and who won't and what he wants always happens, what's the point of trying to encourage people to become Christians? Won't it just sort of happen anyway if God said that's what's going to happen? And if God is good and he's in control... How come then bad stuff happens to me or frankly to anyone else? Don't you have to give up at least one of those two, that either he's not really in control, that's why bad stuff happens, or he's not really good, that's why bad stuff happens. How can you hold both of those and yet bad stuff still be happening to us? And finally, in the light of God's sovereignty, how am I actually meant to cope with the reality of the bad stuff that happens in my life? What am I actually meant to do with this? Well, there's five big questions, aren't they? And I've got about 20 minutes to actually get through all that. So that'll be interesting. So I'm at the top of page 30. First question, our first issue, God's sovereignty and our decisions. If God is really sovereign over every event, do I make real decisions or not? This is actually really important to get a clear answer on because it will affect everything else that probably follows on from it. The begin, from the very beginning of the Bible, uh, it is very clear, it's made very clear to us. Responsibility lies with us for the decisions that we make. If you go right back to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve disregarded God's good command to them, don't eat from this particular tree, Genesis chapter 3, verse 11, look what happens after they ate from that tree. The Lord God said, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. Did you notice that the man, the woman, and the serpent are all held responsible for the decisions they made and the actions they take? What is this you have done? What have you done? Because you did this. They are all held responsible, actually, for the decisions they made, despite all their excuses that they offered. That principle of individual responsibility and accountability is made even more clear when God reveals his purposes in Jesus, right? Because the Father, we learn, has appointed Jesus as judge of everyone. There on your page, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we're told, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You are responsible for what you've done in public and in private, and so too am I. We will each appear before Jesus to answer for what we've done. Now, for those who've turned to Jesus... In faith and repentance, there is assurance in the Scriptures that there will be forgiveness and mercy on that day for you. For everyone who turns to the Lord will be saved. But for those who don't, who decline that offer of forgiveness and salvation in Christ, we know that the outcome won't be good because they will be held responsible For everything that they have done. So what's clear is we're held responsible for the real decisions that we make. So what the scriptures therefore affirm, putting that together with everything we looked at before, is two things. First of all, real agency. God is not a Pixar animator. You are not some helpless character in a Pixar movie who just does whatever the animator has decreed will happen. We are real agents making real decisions for which we will be rightly held accountable. But at the same time, as we saw earlier, the Bible is very clear that God has real sovereignty. God is not in any sense held hostage by our decision-making. You can see there on your page a verse I mentioned before from Acts chapter 2 which shows that even in the death of Jesus God was still working his good and sovereign purposes out. So we have real agency and real sovereignty. How do those two things fit together? Well, I think Jim Packer there in the quote on your page puts it together pretty well. This is what he says. Without violating the nature of created realities or reducing man's activity to robot level God still accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. But surely in that case, what we think of as our free will is illusory and unreal. Well, that depends on what you mean. It is certainly illusory to think that our wills are only free if they operate apart from God. But free will in the sense of free agency, as theologians have defined it, that is the power of spontaneous Self-determining choice is real. As a fact of creation, an aspect of our humanness, it exists, as all things do, in God. How God sustains it and overrules it without overriding it is His secret. But that He does so is certain. So what's He saying? How do they fit together? Real agency, real sovereignty? The answer... It's God's secret. Now, maybe you don't find that a terribly satisfying answer. But what, notice what we do have. We do have a very clear affirmation of two truths, two stakes in the ground. We make real decisions. God is truly sovereign. How those two truths fit together, in Packer's language, how God sustains our real agency, and overrules it without overriding it, that's trying to look inside the black box. God hasn't shown us how those two things fit together. But he's clearly told us both of these things are true. Okay, so let's move on to our second question, since I'm sure that's now abundantly clear, and there'll be no questions about that at question time, for which I'm very thankful. Page 31. God's sovereignty and guidance. Does God have a will then or a plan for my life? How can I know what it is? Well, who are you going to marry? What job should you pursue? Where should you live? What socks will you wear tomorrow? Should you go to that party or not? If God's sovereign then doesn't that mean he's got a plan where all those things are worked out? Uh, One of the staff were telling me about a friend of theirs who genuinely each morning wakes up and prays that God would reveal to him what clothes he should wear that day. And does it sincerely because God is in control. God, God has a plan of all things. So I want to align myself with his will. Is that how you're meant to be living? Well, the good news is actually that God has revealed and He's achieving His will for you. It just might not be the sort of plan you were expecting. Have a look at Romans chapter 8 there on your page, 28 to 30. We know that all things work together for good, for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the key phrase. In order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see it there in verse 31, God does have a plan, right, for your life. It's that you be conformed to the image of his son. That is, that you be more like Jesus in your character, in your convictions, in your passions, and in your priorities. That's God's good plan for your life. And verse 28 tells us that he is exercising his sovereignty over all things that are happening in your life to achieve that end that is what he is achieving he will achieve his purpose that you be like jesus that you be conformed to jesus image so god's will for your life is all about your character it's not about your career he has a plan for your convictions but not what church you'll attend he's got a plan for your passions Not what partner you'll marry. He's got a plan for your priorities. I don't think he minds what party you go to. On all of those other decisions in which the Lord has not revealed a clear will in Scripture, we have freedom. He doesn't have a secret will. For the details of your life that you have to discover. That you have to wait for him to reveal to you. He just wants you to get on and live for him. Now because we make real decisions, we will have to live with the consequences of those decisions. But we can do so in freedom, confident that he will achieve his purpose for us, to make us like Jesus through all things even through sometimes the silly decisions we make so does god care what i do does god care what you do well the answer is i think from the scriptures at absolutely emphatic yes and no yes and no does the living god care who you will marry Well, yes, actually, he does care. According to the Bible, he wants you to marry someone who's single, of the opposite sex, and if you're a Christian, who's also a Christian. But within those boundaries, does he mind if you marry Ruth or Rahab, Roger or Ricardo? Not usually. Unless he has given you a very specific word, which frankly is the exception rather than the rule, you are free. There's nowhere in the scriptures that says otherwise. There's nowhere that God promises to say he will give you that sort of specific guidance. There's nowhere that he says, you should wait for me to tell you what to do. So follow my, 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 um, my dad's advice to me. Dad, dad's still a Christian at age 78, um, still you know, loves the Lord Jesus. And I just remember the advice he gave me years ago, which I think is soaked in biblical truth. He just said on this question of guidance prayerfully move forward prayerfully move forward don't sit around forever waiting to know is he the one is she the one that God wants me to ask out you don't need guidance you just need some guts (laughs) stop being a wimp ask the person out you're free Now, of course, God might not mind who you marry. Uh, God might not mind who you marry within those bounds. But let me tell you this. He absolutely does mind about what motivation you carry with it. That's because he does have a clear will for you in this area, doesn't he? It's absolutely clear in the scriptures. He wants you to have an attitude like Jesus. So your desire heading into any relationship, your desire above all else, must be to serve them. You're not in this relationship, first and foremost, for you. You marry someone in order to be a blessing in their life, not so that they might be a blessing in yours. And if you're not mature enough or selfless enough, To go into a relationship with that attitude, I'm in this to serve them, not to get stuff out of it for me. If you can't handle that, then in all seriousness, do the world a favor and don't go out with anyone. Because according to God, and on this His will is very clear, places like Ephesians 5, according to Him, you are actually not ready, not mature enough for that sort of committed relationship if you can't go into it in order to serve. So does God care about who you marry? Yes and no. But he certainly has made his will very clear when it comes to what sort of attitude you should carry into a marriage. I'll give you one more example. Does God care about what you do with the rest of your life? Does he care about what job you do? Does he want you to be a missionary or a politician or a surfologist? people who study surf, (laughs) usually on a surfboard. Um, Now, again, there's no expectation in the Bible that I can find that God has a specific will in this area promised for each and every Christian that you have to wait for him to mysteriously reveal. He's made his will perfectly clear in all of life, grow in the likeness of Jesus, do everything in Jesus' name. So you're free. You're free to be a missionary, a politician, or a surfologist. Just whatever you're doing, do it for Jesus and his glory. But again, God might not care about or not mind what job you do, but he has made it clear that he cares very much about what motivation drives your decision-making. If your motivation is selfish, if it's actually about you and your success and your comfort, I mean who wouldn't want to be a surfologist? That just sounds awesome. Cruise the waves all day. That sounds cool. That's just about your comfort, isn't it? If it's been driven about you and your success, if it's been driven by you and your insecurity, I need to get into that career to please my parents. Or to feel significant. Or if it's been driven by greed, I need to get a, a good job, that is, a high paying job. So I can save up to buy an apartment so that I can buy a house so that I can spend my life in service of money. If your motivation is ungodly, it doesn't matter what job you pursue, you're still not fitting in with God's will for you. So when it comes to jobs and work, God has given us incredible freedom. And yet that very freedom should give us pause, I guess, to ask the question, Wow, well, how could I be a good steward of all the choices and freedom that God's given me? Do I just take that freedom and say, awesome, thanks God, and just do whatever I want to do? Or will I actually stop and seriously think about sacrificing some of my lovely and good options and using the freedom that God's given me to pursue something that I pray will really further his kingdom. That's a true story. Ali was a first-year architecture student in the EU. In her first year, she went on an EU mission, tip, uh, mission trip to Hilston, rural country town. She came back from that mission trip absolutely fired up for kingdom opportunities in rural Australia but also realising that as fun as, and exciting and as passionate as she was about architecture, that was not going to get her a job in a country town. So she re-enrolled the next year, not in architecture, but in secondary ed. <laughs> so that she could become school teacher. And yes, today she's working as a school teacher. You're free. Under God's sovereignty, you're free when it comes to jobs and work, but how are you going to use that freedom? What are you going to do with the rest of your life? How are you going to use the rest of your life for Jesus? Because you're free. That's a question that we're going to spend some time thinking about this week. In the light of all that we've been learning about God, what I'm trying to do here in all of this is to, to help you avoid the false extremes you can see there on your page. On the one, one hand, I'm encouraging you to take hold of this freedom and, and not fall into some sort of passive, pacifism or Christian fatalism or blame shifting. Oh, I just, you know, I just, it's, God will just work it out. I'll just sort of carry, carry along. I'm trying to say, no, no, take hold of the freedom, make some decisions. At the same time, I don't want you to fall off on the other extreme into arrogance where you say, yeah, it's all about me and the decisions I'll make, go and read the passage here, James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town, spend a year there doing business, making money, yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So we prayerfully, we humbly take hold of the freedoms God's given us under his sovereignty and seek to use them for Jesus. Okay, now I'm going to skip over God's sovereignty and evangelism on page 32. You can talk more about it. You can read the stuff there. Talk more about it in review group tomorrow. Except I just want to point out at the bottom of that page, the clear heart and promise of God there at the bottom of page 32 is that he wants people to be saved. In all our discussion about it, get that absolutely clear. God wants people to be saved. He takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. And his clear promise to anyone who turns to Jesus in faith and repentance is that they will be saved. I'm also going to skip over the issue of God's sovereignty and evil, pages 33, 34. You can read all of that later. You can talk about it in your review group Tomorrow. I'll tell you. I'll tell you that this is how we finish on time. Um, I'll tell you the, the dot points, the summary points of it. Basically, as you read through, you'll see the points that I try to show from the scripture is, first of all, evil is real. It's not an illusion. Evil is real. God is never, though, the pro- the primary author of evil. The ultimate origin of evil is a mystery. The Bible just never clearly answers that question for us. But again, the good news of the gospel is that evil has been defeated in the death of Jesus, and it will be eradicated when Jesus returns. All of annual conference would be over very quickly if I just gave all the talks like this, wouldn't it? Okay, so turn to page 35. God's sovereignty and suffering. I do want to just talk briefly about this because... As a Don Carson put it in a book that I recommended yesterday, How Long, O Lord, which I think everyone should read, if you haven't suffered much in your life, that's just because you haven't lived long enough yet. Suffering is a certainty in this life. And apart from the intellectual questions to do with why is there suffering in the world, the real cry of our hearts when suffering comes is, I think, how can I cope? How do I cope with the grievous and the gruesome? And three responses on your page there to which scripture points us. First of all, weeping. The Apostle Paul tells us, Romans twelve fifteen, weep with those who weep. I don't know if you know the story of Job in the Old Testament. About the only good thing that Job's three friends did when they came and saw the terrible suffering through which Job was going was that they sat with him there in silence for a week. Weep with those who are weeping. Once Job's friends opened their mouths and started lecturing Job on where he'd gone wrong, it all went very bad. But their initial response, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, that was right. When someone's suffering, empathize. Don't try and fix it. Don't try and quote Bible verses that will magically solve and take away the grief. Take some time, maybe lots of time, to weep with those who weep. But the second response to suffering is where we see the comfort that then does come from God's sovereignty, longing. Now listen to how Paul talks about our present suffering in Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time And we will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In his sovereignty, God is bringing a day when the entire created order will be made new. It's not some pie-in-the-sky daydream, right? It's a sure promise of God. And he's already begun that work by raising Jesus from the dead and pouring out his spirit into our hearts such that when you see a Christian person, you can say, behold, the new creation has already begun in that person. And so one of our responses to suffering is hope-filled longing. We know that better future that God has promised in the new creation, which He's already begun in the raising of Jesus and in us by His Spirit. And so we long for it eagerly and patiently. And the final response that the Bible talks about that I want to highlight is entrusting. When suffering comes, when the moment, that's the moment to keep on entrusting yourself to your sovereign God. A passage on your page is from 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, the context is the Apostle Peter talking particularly, I think, about suffering that comes from persecution for being a Christian But his concluding sentence in verse 19, I think, applies more generally. I think it applies to suffering of any kind. See what he says there in verse 19. Therefore, let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Right response when you're in the middle of suffering is not to give up not to get bitter at god turn your back on him now he's the sovereign creator he knows the very number of hairs on your head he's made you He's sustained you he's loved you in jesus his son he is sovereign even over the the gruesome and the grievous so friend when that day comes and i know for many here that day has already come Maybe it's here right today. When that day of suffering comes, entrust yourself to your faithful creator and persevere in his ways. Continue to do good in the strength that he supplies. I'll just give you a moment to gather your thoughts and then I'll close with a prayer. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you made this world your sovereign over the good and the grievous. And we see your loving sovereignty most clearly in the death of your son for us. Please help us as your people to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to long for the future glory that you've promised And in all things, for today, tomorrow, and all the days that you give us, help us to entrust ourselves to you for the furtherance of Jesus' kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.